Welcome to Building Sustainably, The Road to Net Zero, a podcast by RPS. Achieving net zero requires a transformational shift in the way we plan, design, and build. But as the 2050 target edges closer, significant challenges lie ahead. In this podcast series, we aim to tackle the key issues head on. We'll explore real life case studies and provide actionable advice on how to define, design, and manage net zero projects and programs. In this series, we focus on decarbonization challenge facing owners and operators of large property estates, a challenge compounded by aging infrastructure, limited funding, and competing pressures. Here to make the complex easy, I'm your host, Chris Lavery. Welcome, Liz. Many thanks for joining us on our podcast series. Uh, Betton House is a fantastic project. and I'm really looking forward to discussing it in depth with you. Could you begin by introducing the development and how RPS became involved? Okay, thank you very much for the invite. I'm going to really look forward to sort of share some of our knowledge about Park Hill in Sheffield. So Alumno is our client. They're an experienced developer of student development, but they've also got a real kind of focus on art, architecture and culture, and in particular, 1950s design. So Park Hill was the ideal project for them. To take a step back, so the whole of the development is over five phases. It's on a very, very slopey site, but the building line is consistent. And what I mean by that is that at the front where you're overlooking Sheffield City, you've got seven, eight, nine storeys. And at the back where you've got a relationship with the original terrace streets, they're two or three storeys. So there's quite a big discrepancy in the massing across the five phases as a result. So phase one is the biggest phase and overlooks Sheffield City. That was developed in 2010 by Urban Splash. And that's a mixture of tenure of residential development, a nursery, businesses, offices and shops. It's got a real sense of community to it. Urban Splash just finished phase two. And that is all for sale sort of apartments. And again, a mixture of businesses and offices on the ground and lower floors. It's a community that attracts people who are artists, architects, small startup businesses. It's got a bit of a funky feel and it attracts that kind of type of person. So going on to phase three, we as RPS provided project and cost management. And the goal was to turn the original flats into a character for student development that preserved the asset for the future generation and enabled architectural features to be celebrated and to be embraced. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about the historical significance of the building, Liz, and why it's so important that the architectural integrity was saved? Yeah, so again, I think it's taking that two steps back and realising how marvellous Park Hill is. You're coming out of a post-war era. You've got a lot of slum housing that was on the original site. There's a real sense of community there, but it's pretty dire. It's pretty grey. And you've got these two young lads from sort of Sheffield City Council, both architects, both read all the architectural press, and they want to build this massive residential development. And you have to think that in the 1950s, we built more social housing as a country than we have ever done before or since. It's a real kind of utopia. No matter what people think of 1950s design, no matter where they've gone wrong subsequently, it was a huge undertaking and a huge kind of bold move. 
So you've got these two young lads from Sheffield City Council. They're inspired by Unité d'Abitation, which is a modernist residential utopia located in Marseille. It was designed by Le Cabousier, which is literally the shrew. It was his nickname. Widely regarded as a pioneer of modern architecture, he's one of the big architect greats, one of the big heavyweight architects. And Betton House, it characterises that design ethos. It uses wide outdoor corridors, which sort of stimulate these sort of streets in the sky. And actually, you can get a milk float technically all the way around these five phases. And each of these streets have one of the names from the existing kind of residential development, the existing slums. So you're actually moving that community back into something that they may not recognise, but they do as well. It's got a structured design language. So every line, so going back to that kind of consistent building line, every line vertically and horizontally comes with a really strict design language. And that's followed all the way through. There's no breaking of the rules or just do that there. These lads kind of, and these are lads, have really followed that through and done the best they can for Sheffield City. And the bright colours as well. So that kind of that bright colour palette moving away from those 1950s sort of drab slum housing to something bold and something bright and something different. So it's got some really exciting history to it. I think one of the things that you find with conservation restoration projects like this is just the complexity and how challenging they are. So what approach did you adopt going into the project? I think we were really lucky, and I'm going to do a shout out here, Chris. We had a great architect um, in Whitton Cox, local Sheffield-based architect, and the architect who led the team was Matt Borland. He very much had a duty. He felt and undertook very much having a duty to do the right thing by Park Hill and by Sheffield, because Park Hill is Sheffield and Sheffield is Park Hill. It has that relationship. It is the first thing that you see out of the train station. You can see it across the city centre because it's right up on top of that hill. It is such an important part of the city. And I think that's helped give that level of in-depth knowledge that's required. So there was a lot of kind of understanding what was there, what was meant to be there. So, for example, the painted colour palette that had been lost over time. There was a lot of understanding about that. But there was also a lot of understanding about what Urban Splash did with phase one, why it was done and how that could be improved and maybe sort of driving forward a more retentionist strategy. So actually make do and amend, actually understanding kind of what you can do with what you have. And I'll repeat that. The need to do what you can with what you have. So it's you're doing the best for sustainability, for the client's budget and also for the historical building. And actually, that all knits together and creates one design ethos, which alumni very much supported as their vision for the project. Okay, so you talked there about retentionist strategy. Can you explain what that involves? So a retentionist strategy, it's where you want to preserve a historic building. So instead of sort of knocking a building down, either sort of putting that sort of material into a tip, into recycling, into reuse, it's actually using what you've got and not creating this surplus of material and actually understanding how you can reuse that. So a massive amount of the carbon saving has come from simply come from not demolishing that building. But it's also looking at other aspects. So going into that project, there were a number of aspects that we were targeted to save. And there was ones that were additional that we were able to save. So there was historic mosaics all along the ground floor. They were part of the listing. They are seen as important a feature for Park Hill as a mosaics in a church. 
So it's exactly the same principle, grade two star mosaics in Park Hill, same as grade two star mosaics in a church. And those had to be saved. So obviously we retained those and understood how we did that, where they needed to be sort of made good. So you needed some additional mosaics, some additional kind of sort of bespoke techniques to do that. But also where we had to just photograph it, record it, board it up and leave it for future generations. Now, the sort of the third thing that we did was with the bricks. So the phase one project took out all the original brick panels. And part of that architectural language involved different colours of bricks that kind of spread across each of the different streets of the sky. So each street had a subtly different brick. It was part of that architectural language. We can understand why phase one did it, because there was a lot of sort of water leakage through that brick. It was how you could actually get that brick to be clean without necessarily sort of destroying the face of the brick and causing more issues. So it was a big exercise in understanding how you did that. But that was very important for the planners that we saved those brick panels and we were actually able to keep that bit of the architectural language. Now, going on to the fourth thing for the retentionist strategy, we looked at balustrades. And I'll go into a little bit more detail in a bit about the balustrades. But we didn't think when we walked into that project we would be able to save them. They'd all been replaced with new balustrades on phase one. They were in a pretty poor condition, some of them in worse condition than others, depending on what side of the buildings they were for the weathering. But that was an important element where we walked in not expecting to retain it, and we walked out having retained them in the majority. Okay, Liz. So there's quite a lot in that, really. But, you know, if you were to boil it down, what would you find to be the main challenges that you faced? So it's understanding you've got that need for that retentionist strategy. So you've got that understanding that you've got a cost budget that you need to meet. You've got your sustainability standards and you've also got your heritage standards. And that all came on the same sheet for Park Hill. It doesn't always with all projects, but for Park Hill, it's all the same thing. So the main challenges is getting that team right around you. So you've got Witt and Cox, who've done an in-depth review. They've got an understanding of what they think they can do. But we also had kind of current building standards. Where it helped with the student development is that we had a little bit more rope to play with. So we were never going to access the balustrades because that was seen as not the right thing to do with the student development to allow students access to the balconies and to the outside space because it was seen as, as a risk. So we could always do something that was a little bit more challenging and a little bit more retentionist than, say, the phase one scheme. And then we also had a contractor on board right from the very beginning. We already had a relationship between the client, ourselves and Kia. And actually having those, that contractor in the room from very early design meetings, able to bring in a different set of expertise and helped us challenge so helped us face those main challenges and they were able to bring in their subcontractors. And we're going to go a little bit more into date, Paul, into detail about stakeholders and who we needed to get around the table to make the right design decisions a bit later. OK, so you've mentioned it, but obviously retrofitting is very complex and obviously a lot of time on complexity can be costly. So how did you manage that on the project? I think for me and for what we did with Park Hill is having very robust project management and cost management sort of techniques and tools. It might not be the most glamorous end. It's not a pretty picture. It's not necessarily easily relatable to, to other people. But it's about understanding that rigid process and actually by applying that process with rigour, by doing that challenge, that helps support the team focus their energies. 
So actually, it was quite looking backwards. We did have our challenges. We did have to take a couple of steps back. But actually, it was quite a smooth process because there was a core good understanding from the architect about what was needed for Park Hill and for Betton House in terms of the existing architectural language and where they would like it to go. There was a good dialogue with the planners about understanding kind of what they would like to see and how that potentially differed from phase one. We had a core team of structural and mechanical and electrical engineers who helped support that process and look at what was feasible. And we challenged those. We had a good contractor on board with a subcontractor team that was able to bring on and actually understanding that. And by understanding those elements and having that really clear understanding of what the building consisted of, we could then focus when we got to a point when we thought we had a scheme that we could, but we needed to save money, we were able to quickly pull together a VE list. So going back to that PM tool and actually focus our energies about what we needed to look at and what were the easy wins, what were the things that we needed to actually sort of do a little bit more digging on and what were really hard things. And we're going to go a little bit onto the balustrades in a bit, but actually those were the kind of the really hard things where we need to focus the energy on, get the team around the table and actually have those challenging conversations. And, and face those challenges. Okay. So you've mentioned the balustrades a couple of times. It's obviously very important about how they were retained because my understanding is initially they were due to be replaced. So do you want to explain about that particular part of the project? Yeah. So give a little bit of understanding to the people listening in. So because we've got these streets in the sky, each of the streets is an open access corridor with accommodation in a literally like a burger arrangement. So you've got kind of the street as part of the filling. You've got accommodation directly off that street and then you've got accommodation both up and down. So you've got three layers And each of those three layers makes up a street that runs across the whole site. So you've got your streets in the sky that are sandwiches, and that makes up that kind of height of the building that varies across the site. So each of those streets will have a balustrade along it. But then on the side, you've also got balconies at both the upper and lower levels, which also have balustrades on. So the majority of the facade is made up of those concrete balustrades. Now, each balustrade has got a top rail but it's also got a balustrade, so literally spindles with a frame around it. The majority of the top rails, we thought we could save quite early doors because the majority of those, the ones that were protected from the weather were in good condition. The ones, there were a couple of elevations that had really hit the weather where there'd been a lot of wind and rain damage, which would need to be replaced. And then, so the second part of the balustrade, so the spindles and the frame around it. Now, that was where the real challenge was. The initial sort of design required the replacement of all of those because the structural engineer did not believe we could actually replace the balustrades because they are so slender and because every single one of them had been eaten away a little bit. It was how you could actually create that kind of consistent sort of concrete finish that met current standards and could actually be applied on site. And that's where we kind of got that expertise in. So Kia's subcontractor sat around the table and actually understood in great depth how you could create a bespoke spindle mould where you've got one balustrade that's in relatively good condition, but you've got two or three spindles that need a little bit more work on them. A little bit more concrete goes in. That bespoke mould keeps that kind of consistent design profile so you don't have fatter spindles and thinner spindles and actually can keep the whole of that sort of element of the work. And by doing that on the majority of facades, we actually can save the vast majority 
of the balustrades and there are only a, a few that we've had to replace. So the ones that were replaced were mainly on sort of one of the elevations which had been badly weathered. But actually, by replacing those new and by embracing that to be new, you could read the language. So you could read where the weathering had been and what we could actually save. And actually, we embraced that kind of make do and amend sort of policy and actually embrace that as part of the architectural language. So you've hit your sustainability, you've hit your historic sort of retentionist strategy, and you've also done great things for your client's budget. Okay, great. And obviously with a big impact on the carbon as well, in terms of the fact that you've managed to retain so much. Exactly. Exactly, Chris. Yeah, you mentioned previously about collaboration and the buy-in of the different stakeholder groups that was needed. How did you manage to bring that to the project? How did you get the teams to work together? Because obviously that was a key aspect of this. I don't think this is all us. And it's always a little bit of chance to get a team to gel and to get the right people on the table. But you've got a very good architect who's led, felt there was a real duty of care there. That greatly helped. We had a strong supporting team from the rest of the development sort of team. Alumno were sort of a client that very much supported retention strategy about looking in depth at different things. We did a lot of sit down workshops about key elements and we put the time and the effort in to get the people around the table and about kind of keeping that kind of agenda sort of tight about focusing on where we needed to do and about moving on and going, right, let's let's keep looking at the next challenge and let's put our effort and our time into the biggest decisions, the most complicated decisions. And I think what really helped those complicated decisions is having Kia as a contractor and as a contractor team also around the table. And it was one of the meetings that really stuck in my head was sort of the guy from the concrete sort of subcontractor who was sort of middle-aged, only ever done sort of concrete stuff, was clearly kind of very safe pair of hands, knew about concrete, and literally kind of like thrashing it out with the architect and with the structure engineers to go, no, we can do this. We can save those um, sort of spindles. And by saving the spindles, you save the balustrades and you save the whole piece. And that's what kind of came together. And it was actually you need to kind of have those rigid PM sort of tools where you set your meeting up, you set what you need to actually achieve in those meetings and about having that kind of sharp timescale. So, right, we can save the top rails. Let's move on, guys. We've sorted that out. Let's go on for the next challenge. But actually, once you get that kind of joy in the room where it is kind of everybody focused on the task of the spindles, sit back, let the experts talk. And it is watching the magic in the room. And I think everybody working towards a common goal, you've got to get the team together to do that and see it and have the vision. Yeah. So my understanding is that through this retentionist strategy, you helped to save around 1.2 tonnes of CO2 embodied carbon, which to my mind seems quite a large amount. So what makes up the 1.2 tonnes and where do the biggest savings come from? Okay, so it kind of it goes back and, and looking at those four different elements. So the, the frame, the mosaics, the, the brick panels and the added bonus of the balustrades by not knocking down the building and by keeping that building in place you're obviously saving a huge chunk of carbon simply because we're not having to demolish everything either sort of landfill or recycle all that existing material and then sort of put in a whole new set of processes and a whole new sort of energy driven sort of processes of putting a new building in place with new materials so that is the biggest saver you have to think that Park Hill had had a very challenging relationship with Sheffield City. And I am say that because it worked for a number of different decades. But then due to social housing policy, 
things were starting to sort of turn it into a, a sinker state. A lot of the industry had gone in Sheffield. It was a difficult and challenging and sort of a place to live. And that's why it became redundant. And that's why it was in quite poor condition. So at one stage, there was very much a drive to actually demolish it and start again. And through fluke, it was picked up by Urban Splash by getting phase one over the line. People started to view it differently. And therefore, you sort of, there was that kind of want to sort of save that carbon, save that building and redevelop it. But that was the biggest part of the saver. You've then got the small kind of win with the mosaics. So again, it's historic building fabric. It's got very much a focus on by sort of the professionals in terms of kind of saving that. The brick panels, the planners were very keen on saving the brick panels because sort of it was they were taken out on phase one and they wanted to see that kind of architectural language being retained. And then the added bonus of your concrete balustrades being able to sort of save that final sort of element of carbon and actually looking at things and putting the, the effort in where, where it's needed. And that allowed us to save 1.2 tonnes of embodied carbon and saw Betton House, Park Hill win property weeks student developer of the year in 2020. Which is a fabulous achievement and it's always good to get recognition through awards and it speaks volumes really. So thanks for that, Liz. And what would you say, there's a lot going on there, but the biggest learnings that you've taken away from working on the project? I think it's going back to those series of workshops where we knew we needed to save budget to make the scheme affordable and for the scheme to go over the line. We knew there was very much a retentionist strategy And there was also this drive for sustainability as well, which is a difficult thing to achieve in historic projects to balance the two. We had a great team around the table. And for me, my lessons learned from that is don't be afraid to ask stupid questions. So set the team up, but you're there to kind of get the best out of people. Stick your head above the parapet, ask the experts, ask them why they can't make a spindle mould. And it's amazing where you can go with it. If there's a want in the room and there feels that there's that expertise where people want to come up with a decision and a solution, then keep encouraging people until you get the right answer. And trusting people to come up with that technical response is really critical. Sort of stepping up to the challenge of retrofitting existing buildings, it's not easy. But by having the right people around the table and by challenging that questions and by asking that, you get a real sense of joy. And actually also knowing when to sort of stop and sit back. When you got kind of the sort of the concrete subcontractor getting into an embroiled conversation with the architect because they're gonna get it to work and you can see it. There's a real energy and a real excitement in the room. You don't need to have to sort of PM everything. You can just sit back and let people kind of do the right thing. Okay, Liz. So when you say stupid questions, I think generally it's only you that think the stupid questions. There's other people in the same room that will have wanted to ask the same question as well. So I think there is a message there to say, just ask. There's nothing wrong with that. So thanks again for taking us through the project journey. Betton House is now viewed as a having timeless value and near unrivaled cultural integrity. So just one final question for you, Liz. Many of your audience are in roles where they've been tasked to achieve net zero targets across large property estates. What's the one piece of advice you would give them? Don't be afraid to tackle a retentionist project and don't think that doing the right thing historically and to maintain a historic asset doesn't necessarily tally with what is sustainable. There are solutions out there by getting the right sort of technical expertise in the room 
And by asking those stupid questions, by sticking your head above the parapet, actually, it's a drive to kind of go and find those solutions and do the right thing for that project and for that place. Okay, that's great. Well, listen, Liz, I'd just like to say, finally, thank you very much for sharing your project journey, for the experiences that you've had, and for basically delivering an outstanding project. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk. Yeah, pleasure. Thanks, Liz. Building Sustainably, the Road to Net Zero podcast is brought to you by RPS. To find out more about RPS and how we can help your organization achieve its net zero targets, visit rpsgroup.com. And then make sure to search for Building Sustainably, the Road to Net Zero in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at RPS, thanks for listening.